Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to So To Speak. We spent a lot of time on this show talking about recent free speech controversies. But today, we're hopping into our DeLorean, and we're going to travel over 200 years into the past to the generation that founded the United States and began the process of making freedom of speech a central American value. The Doc Brown to our Marty McFly on this journey is Associate Professor of Journalism at New York University, one Mr. Stephen Solomon. Professor Solomon is the author of a book published earlier this year by St. Martin's Press called Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. Revolutionary Dissent is the story of America's founding, told through the lens of how the freedom to dissent shaped that founding and continues to shape how Americans discuss and debate some of our most pressing issues. I finished reading Revolutionary Dissent a few weeks ago and knew immediately that I would need to have Professor Solomon on the show. He politely agreed, and we met in late October to chat about his book and about the men and women who gave meaning to what is, of course, the main topic of this show, the freedom of speech. So here's our conversation. Professor Stephen Solomon, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. We are discussing your book, Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. We are here at your employer's building, NYU's Journalism Institute. You might be able to hear that we're in the hustle bustle of New York, right on Cooper Square. Let's dive into your book a little bit. What prompted you to start writing this? I teach several courses on First Amendment uh, freedom of expression. And in doing so, it's really a a history and law course. And so we start in the founding period and discuss the suppression of speech, the early laws that enabled the authorities to punish people who spoke out against the government. These were called seditious libel laws, Mm -hmm. and people were punished under it. And um, during this period, there's a very rich history uh, that we get into. And so uh, it's not a very well-known history in terms of, I mean, certainly a lot of books have been written about that era, but not necessarily from the standpoint of colonial protest and the enlargement of the public sphere of political participation, the spread of protest, and what that meant both um, to the law and to the accumulating resistance to the British. Yeah, and you present this in a very unique way through stories. Uh, That's one of the things we love to do at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education is talk about how the law and how our rights interact with real people. Um, And so you tell nine different stories um, about nine different people during the founding generation, some of whom might be recognizable to our listeners, such as James Madison, Patrick Henry, Paul Revere. But you also tell stories of people who aren't so well known, people like Andrew Hamilton, for example, or uh, Benjamin Eds and John Gillen, I hope I'm pronouncing Benjamin's name correctly. Can you talk a little bit about why you decided to structure that book that way? And then maybe tell us about a few of these lesser known uh, members of the founding generation. Each of these characters, both uh, well-known and, and not so well-known, are there because they're you know, protagonists in telling a specific story about the enlarging protest movement. And so really, each one of these people um, uh, engaged in a different form of protest, 
which is so important because what we're really um, talking about here is that's important is that the, the protest movement wasn't simply pamphlets and essays. That's what survives today. You know, you can go to the library and read essays from that period, the pamphleteers like James Otis Jr. and John Dickinson. Um, but those were stories that, uh, you know, publications that were, you know, really for the educated classes. There were a lot of patriots, people like Ebenezer McIntosh, a shoemaker in Boston, um, Andrew Hamilton, um, a lawyer who argued the case for John Peter Zenger in 1735. Mm-hmm. Here and, in New York. Here in New York. Yeah. Uh, and others who were involved in different forms of, of protest. Uh, Paul Revere, who, um, with his engraving of the Boston Massacre. Yeah. And one of the main theses of your book is that all these different individuals exercised free speech in practice while they might not have had it in law. What brought you to that conclusion? Because it's not a very intuitive conclusion because you talk in your book about how there's a debate about this in the middle of the 20th century amongst professors and historians about what what did the founders actually think about freedom of speech and how did they practice it? The conventional way of going about this is to look at what the, the founding generation actually wrote hmm. at the time and what actually... Uh, existed as the prevailing law. So the prevailing law was seditious libel coming from the common law of England, mm-hmm. brought ashore in the colonies because this was, you know, these were English settlements. And if you look at the law, the law remained throughout this period. It was, you know, people could be punished for um, criticizing royal officials, criticizing and they were. the king. And, 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 and they were very early on, yeah. you know, up until 1700. There were about about twelve hundred cases mm-hmm. um, where uh, people were dragged into courts mm-hmm. and and punished for for speaking out. Um, but so so the the law itself didn't change um, until much later. Mm-hmm. But the actual practice of the founding generation did change. Their protests by every means possible, whether it was pamphlets or essays which were, you know, meant so much to the more educated classes, or whether it was the more popular protest, the liberty trees and the effigies, the songs they wrote, the verse, the engravings, uh, even, even plays, mm-hmm. um, you know, on and on. The, these popular forms of protest um, were things that the founding generation used um, to uh, voice their dissent. And if you want to, you know, if you ask the question, what did the founding generation mean by freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, you have to take account of what they actually did. Mm-hmm. The law took a long time to change, but they rejected the law. There yeah. were attempts to prosecute people for seditious libel. John Peter Zangle, Zanger, you yeah. talk about the jury just refused to uh, convict him. Right. I mean, they, they, they had this law. They couldn't repeal it. It was, it was English common law, uh-huh. but they could ignore it. Uh-huh. And so they did ignore it. They ignored it in the streets. They ignored it uh, in their writings. And they ignored it when they were called upon by the authorities to indict their neighbors. So there's really two stories. One is, is the law that existed on the books. That's one understanding. Mm-hmm. That, that didn't change for a long time. Mm-hmm. But the other understanding of what the law is, is the, is the understanding that the people actually had of what their liberties were. 
Mm-hmm. And um, if you look at the kind of question of what's original meaning, the original meaning of the founding gener- that the founding generation attached to the liberty of thought, I think you can glean from what they actually did, what they, what they participated in, because uh, they had no, uh, they had no influence over the law, changing the law. They mm-hmm. could, but but they did ignore the law, and they did reject the law when they were called upon to in, indict their neighbors. Yeah, it's sort of an inverse of the idea. I think Learned Hand talked about this when, when liberty dies in practice or in the hearts of men, uh, you can't expect it to live on in the law. It's in this case, it's. You know, there was no liberty in law, but there was liberty in practice. Right, and and they expected to be protected when they went out and 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 you know did what they did around the liberty tree and in in, in the streets and, and and when they were singing their songs of protest, they they expected to be protected, and I think that's what they meant by the freedom of expression. Um, uh, and they, they they formed the American political culture that we know today. Mm-hmm. One of the main focuses of your book is, of course, the freedom of the press, which was very much important in spreading the uh, news about the, revolution, the Revolutionary War, the Constitutional Convention, and whatnot. Um, and you say in the book that to the extent that the founding generation dis- discussed the right to dissent, the right to speak out, uh, they focused largely on freedom of the press. And they said little by comparison uh, about the separate freedom of speech. Why was that? I think it was because the, the, the ideas were really spread by the press. I mean, that was the means of mass communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, people could speak, they could uh, debate, but only the people who were there could hear it. And so the means of, I mean, you couldn't record it. Um, the, the, the only means of, of spreading it was through newspapers and pamphlets and, and broadsides. So uh, when it came to... Uh, time for the, 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 the royal authorities to try to clamp down. It was the, the, the printing presses that they went after. It was the, you know, the, the Boston Gazette, for example, um, that they, that they uh, you know, tried to, to, to punish. So uh, over, over the years, with these attempts to, um, you know, to suppress speech, um, the, the, the emphasis by, you know, by the founding generation became... Um, one of, of taking care of the press because uh, that was the means of, of, of uh, really spreading dissent that they, that they n- knew and, and used. Mm-hmm. And well, the common law approach uh, recognized a freedom of the press, um, but even then uh, it only had a prohibition on prior restraints. Isn't that correct? That's right. So the, the, the crime of seditious libel was actually born in the 13th century. Um, and then you go forward a couple of centuries in the 1500s uh, with the invention of the printing press. That represented a new threat to the king and, and to parliament. So people were now able to um, not just speak against uh, the king, but also to, to publish and to, to, to make as many copies as they wanted. And so they did you know, any kind of protest, political protest or religious protest. You know the printing of Bibles that got the Protestant Reformation uh, really going. That was all you know the the, the printing press. So um, the, the the king had to figure out a way to control the printing press beyond seditious libel. And so uh, the the licensing of presses, and, which John Milton addressed in Arianna yeah, 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 and not only licensing but uh, royal censors who would read 
manuscript. And so there was pre-publication licensing and censorship and post-publication seditious libel. So uh, in, in the late 1600s, um, about 1695, the licensing system expired. And it expired in, in the colonies as well um, uh, shortly thereafter. And so what was left was the freedom to publish, but the responsibility for uh, what they called licentious uh, publications afterwards. And that was seditious libel. So freedom of the press meant the freedom to publish without prior censorship, but responsibility afterwards um, if you criticized uh, the authorities. One, one big thing that I took away from your book um, is you talk about a bit the, the history and background of the news industry. Uh, and you talk about how the first newspaper publishing on a daily basis was, wasn't published until 1702. Uh, the newspaper, this news industry, was new to the founding generation. Uh, you know, do you believe that the revolution could have happened without the advent of this daily publishing that, that um, came into being in the 18th century? It would have been very difficult because, um, you know, you wouldn't have had um, the widespread uh, pamphlets and, and newspapers that actually carried the intellectual arguments against the, the British taxes and, and the other acts that the parliament passed. Uh, arguments that went back uh, to English uh, constitutional history, Magna Carta and the English, English Bill of Rights. And so these arguments were, were very deep and very powerful. And they resonated with, you know, at least with the, the learned classes in, in the colonies. So um, that, that provided the intellectual backdrop and intellectual power behind um, uh, this, this protest movement. But it had to be more than, than just pamphlets mm -hmm. and more than essays because, um, first of all, a large proportion of the population couldn't read and write. And even many of those who could uh, were not learned enough to you know, be able to, to, to read and absorb the kind of arguments that, that were being made. And so the, the, at a very critical juncture in 1765 in Boston, um, the leading patriots realized that you know that the pamphlets by James Otis uh, weren't going to carry the day. They needed to expand protest and enlist the entire population in order to convince Parliament to um, to rescind the, the Stamp Act. And so that's when they they expanded um, uh, the protest movement by uh, virtue of um, you know demonstrations in the street, which. Um, really got started with the Liberty Tree. Mm -hmm. um, and Liberty and, Poles were here and, in New York. And, and there Liberty was a Liberty Poles Pole. In New York. Um, these were, you know, spectacular I I events. I mean, they drew thousands of people. Mm -hmm. In Boston, three or 4,000 people would come to these rallies at the Liberty Tree in a town of 16,000. Yeah. So, you know, this, this was a, a, these were very big events. And um, it also, the, the Liberty Trees, you know, they, why did people come to Liberty Trees? They didn't, they didn't really come to hear politicians give speeches. They were drawn to Liberty Trees by the spectacle of effigies hanging. And so the favorite thing that the, the, you know, the, 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 the protesters would do is, um, you know, take a, you know, make an effigy out of the, um, the British prime minister and the stamp collector and 
hang those from, from the liberty tree, and also an effigy of the devil. Now, this was, we think of the devil in one way today in, in 2016, and people smile about it. And, uh, but, but back in, in, in Boston in the, in the 1760s, the, the devil really had, you know, shocking uh, meaning. It was, the devil was the, uh, the, the representation of evil in uh, Puritan theology. So uh, this, you know, this uh, image of the devil uh, hanging from a tree with the, with the prime minister was shocking to, to 18th century uh, eyes and ears. So that, that, that it was a spectacle. It drew people to the liberty tree. And once they were at the Liberty Tree, they would talk with one another. And as songs developed, Liberty songs, they would sing the Liberty songs. Yeah, Joel Barlow, I think, is one person that you yeah. reference who said that one good song is worth a dozen addresses or proclamations. Right, right. You know, there's a clarity to the songs and the symbolic speech. Um, the, 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 the arguments made in the pamphlets were, as I said, very complex. Mm-hmm. But... The symbolic speech, the effigies, the songs, um, it, everybody could participate in that. And there was a very, you know, there was a clarity to that. You didn't have to know all the legal arguments to understand that what was represented by the liberty tree and by the effigies was the, the, the idea that uh, there was a faraway parliament that was um, uh, uh, acting in a way that was... Um, Injurious to the colonies, mm-hmm. and the colonies had no say over the matter, and and people understood that. Do you think that one of the reason then for the focus amongst the founders on the press was because it was really a medium that spoke to them? Uh, they were a member of the intellectual uh, elite, the political class. You're talking about people like James Madison, who you call the framer, John Dickinson, who you call the farmer, people like. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson. You, know, you look at you look at some of the state constitutions that were adopted during the Revolutionary War, and you write in your book that nine of the eleven states had clauses protecting freedom of the press, and only Pennsylvania had a clause protecting freedom of speech. Um, do you think it's because th- that's where those people went to have these debates? Yes, I think that's that's uh, one of the primary reasons. But I, I also think that it took a long time for the legal doctrine to catch up with the, the practice of, of political expression. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you had the pamphlets, you had the newspapers, things coming off the press. But you also had political expression that went well beyond that. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, you know, the symbolic speech. And they did these things, but they didn't necessarily theorize about the idea that these things should be explicitly protected. It's just, it's something that they did. They used it in their everyday protest. And it was the means for expanding protest. It was very meaningful and very powerful. You write in your book that during the time before independence, John Adams said that he was not aware of the importance of these compositions, these pamphlets. Um, They all appeared to him, as he wrote, in the circumstance of the country like children's play at the marbles or pushpins. And then he went on to add in a letter to Jefferson, this is of course after their presidencies when they became good friends, that he said that he was in great error of having that opinion. Um, No doubt for these things were necessary to give popularity to our cause both at home and abroad. So um, 
you know, and, and at least in his case, he, he didn't see them for what they were until much later. And he had the Alien yeah. and Sedition Act, which yeah. you also talk yeah. about extensively yeah. in your book. Well, 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 John Adams was one of the early patriots to come to the conclusion that they needed to break from England. Mm-hmm. I mean, he saw that um, probably a year or two before most others did. Mm-hmm. And so he, he felt that once he concluded that it was time to, to, to strike out on, on, on their own, he, he didn't have the patience for, you know, the, the, the continual writings and um, the, all the different forms of protest. He just wanted to get on with it. And so yeah. that's why he expressed that. Uh, and then later, looking back and saying, well, you know, we needed that extra year or two because in order to have a revolution, we needed the public to buy in, everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and the colonies were not yet at that point. And so the extra year or so did convince um, a lot of people throughout the colonies that this, this was a time to, to do it. You spoke earlier about symbolic speech. Uh, what, what was the importance of the number 45 to the founding generation? Oh, 45. <laughs> yeah. Well, 45 um, became a, a symbolic number, uh, and that goes back to England and, and John Wilkes. So uh-huh. John Wilkes was a member of parliament. And he also happened to publish a, a newspaper. Uh, and in the 45th issue of his paper, he uh, made the mistake, I guess, of, uh, of criticizing the king and um, was then prosecuted for seditious libel. And so the number 45 became kind of symbolic of, of political martyrdom, symbolic mm-hmm. of, of freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And it was used all over England to symbolize that. And then it, it spread to uh, the, 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 the colonies, and uh, it, it, it became a widespread as a symbol of protest with Alexander McDougall in New York when he was jailed. Uh-huh. We uh, have a McDougall Street here in New yeah, York. Yeah, we have or? a McDougall Street right in, in the village. Yep. And um, he went to jail um, after criticizing uh, the New York Assembly for a deal that they did to provide um, supplies to the British troops who were then in New York. He protested against that by, by distributing a broadside around the city. Uh, it, he signed it a son of liberty. Of course, he wasn't going to use his own name mm-hmm. because if he didn't want to be prosecuted. Yeah. But they did find out his name because the royal governor issued a, a proclamation offering a big reward and a printer's apprentice came forward. So he... Um, uh, he was a wealthy merchant. He could have uh, afforded easily to pay the bail, but refused to because he was a member of the Sons of Liberty, and they decided, he decided, that they could make a real point out of political martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And he became, um, in a sense, the John Wilkes of America. Yeah. And the number 45 was adopted uh, here and all throughout New York, and then all throughout the colonies, the number 45 was used um, in every possible way. I mean, they would have dinners, for example, with 45 gentlemen who would uh, eat from you know, a, 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 a cow that had been killed at 45 months. Mm-hmm. And it would be you know, 45 pounds, and they'd have 45 toasts, and 
you know, at the end of the meal, 45 women would come in and they would do, you know, 45 minutes of dancing and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. But, and, and the newspapers were just full of this. Yeah. And Alexander McDougall was visited upon by 45 virgins in his jail cell. Right. So, so you know, the, the number 45 was, was a means to get public attention. Mm-hmm. And so having him, you know, having 45 so-called virgins visit him in, in a jail cell, you know, made all the papers. This was all set up in advance. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, Alexander McDougall was visited so often. Now, keep in mind, he's a prisoner in a dark, cold jail cell in New York during the winter. He had so many visitors, including these 45 virgins, they actually had to take an, out a, an ad in, the, in one of the local papers asking that his friends set up appointments to see him. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was between the hours of 3 and 6 p.m. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think he needed the other hours to write um, <laughs> his protests. And, um, but this spread, it was an opportunity to spread through a symbol, every bit as powerful as a liberty tree. Uh, but it, this, this time it was a number, yeah. 45. And you mentioned that Alexander McDougall got in trouble for his criticism of the assembly in New York, uh, his anonymous criticism. Can you talk about the role that anonymous speech played during the revolutionary era? Because almost all of our founders who published during this time did so anonymously. If you look at the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, McDougall, John Dickinson wrote as the farmer. Why did they do it that way? And bringing it to today, what is the conception of anonymous speech today? and our relationship sure. with it to the, the founding generation. Sure. Well, they did it back in the colonial times for a number of reasons. One, of course, was to evade the seditious libel laws. So um, if they were writing um, you know, essays against the Stamp Act or any of the other acts of parliament, um, they were worried that they might be prosecuted, so they would take on a, a, a pseudonym. Uh, they, would, they would also use it to give the, the, um, the sense that there were more people writing against whatever, whatever they were writing. Mm-hmm. Um, because an ind- one individual would take multiple pseudonyms. Yes, one, so Samuel Adams, I think, over, his, over this period had, had more than 20 pseudonyms. Uh-huh. And so people would take these different pseudonyms writing on the same issue. Mm-hmm. And it just looked like more, you know, th- th- there were more people agreeing with them. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they took on names that gave a certain sense of uh, of, who, of who they were. You know, they would take on like a son of liberty, mm-hmm. right, or you know, a friend of the Constitution, or, or, uh-huh. or something like that. The, the, the name itself conveyed um, information. Meaning. Yeah, yeah. You talk and, about that in your chapter about John Dickinson. He was a learned man who took the name the Farmer to sort of endear himself to the average man. Um, you know, endear these arguments to the average man. Yeah, so, so John Dickinson was, was a lawyer. He was educated in, in London in the law. And he was uh, a far cry from a farmer in his, his daily activities. But uh, the key thing was that at that time, you know, the, the colonies were an agrarian society and uh, farmers were, and, and the land, working the land was, it was revered. And John Dickinson took on uh, the name of the farmer and um, he, the way he described himself at the beginning of his, his first essay, The Letters of the Farmer from, from Pennsylvania, his first letter described, introduced himself as this farmer who 
uh, had retired from the fields and he was, had been successful. And he was in the library of his home reading various books and looking out at, at what was going on and, and very troubled by it. And he gave the sense of this you know, very smart, learned man of the land who was f- kind of far off from all the, the conflict that was taking place in the bigger cities. And he could look kind of dispassionately on what was going on mm-hmm. and render some kind of uh, judgment or understanding. And uh, people read it and they, they, they got the sense of who this person was through the pseudonym he took and through his self-description. And um, the name The Farmer just resonated all through the colonies. People, you know, people toasted him. Mm-hmm all throughout the colonies, there was even a ship named after him, yeah. the farmer. You, you write in your book that his publications were amongst the most popular of the founding generation, but his star uh, sunk a bit when he didn't vote in favor of independence. That's right. He, he, was, uh, he in a sense, carried the colonies towards independence through mm-hmm. his writings, through mm-hmm. his... Um, uh, his extensive understanding of, of English law and how it, he thought it applied to uh, the acts of parliament. Uh, he was also um, the, the author of the Liberty Song, mm-hmm. uh, which was, became very popular. So he was both a, a pamphleteer and kind of a best-selling uh, songwriter. Um, and that, that shows kind of b- both sides, you know, somebody who is agile enough intellectually to engage people with the most complex legal arguments and also understanding that that wouldn't, you know, in, you know reach everybody mm-hmm. because not everybody was, was able to understand that. Mm-hmm. So he authored the most popular song which um, and, and set it to British military music that everybody knew. Mm-hmm. And so people uh, immediately took it up all over the colonies. And so he, he sort of understood both, both sides of it. He had a popularized protest. Yeah. Your book makes it clear in a number of places, however, that we shouldn't look at the founding generation through rose-colored glasses. Um, one of your chapters deals extensively with uh, John Adams' Alien and Sedition Act during his presidency. And you also talk about how in Virginia in 1776 they made it illegal to utter any word that defended the king or the parliament or to persuade other citizens to return to a dependence upon the crown of Great Britain. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, these were the first instances of um, anti-speech laws being passed uh, during times of national crisis. So Mm -hmm. there were laws in the colonies that were were passed um, restricting speech um, during the Revolutionary War. Um, but of course, the you know the colonies were at war with that was the, the greatest argument. military power on earth, and they had to have unity. That mm-hmm. was that was the argument. And then you know later on in, in 1798, when when the Federalists controlled Congress, passed this the Sedition Act. Um, you had um, great fear of war with France. France then was the the greatest military power, and the young country, the United States had virtually no military at all and uh, felt very much at, at risk of war. Um, in fact, the French were already seizing um, American uh, merchant ships. Mm-hmm. And so John Adams was, was you know, ramping up the military to anticipating a possible war 
and um, along the way, they they felt that they had to pass the Alien and Sedition Acts. Sort of the, the the first real, really serious, actually the most odious in American history, probably the mm-hmm. uh, anti-speech law. Uh, and the Alien Acts uh, reflected the nativism of the time. Of course, um, that that's carried through today. We, there's many episodes in American history of that. Then it was against um, you know French people, um, French citizens living in the United States, and any immigrants coming over. They just didn't trust them. Mm-hmm. So you argue um, that the founders believed that, and you cite a lot of sources. You cite a lot of sources throughout this book, and that's one of the things I love about this book um, is it's extensively footnoted or endnoted, I should say. Uh, but the, you argue that the founders believed that freedom of speech and the freedom of press were essential to democracy. But there's a portion at the end of your book where the founders are debating, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, how to enumerate that or whether to enumerate those rights uh, with a Bill of Rights. The Federalists believed that if you created a Bill of Rights and enumerated certain rights, that that would presume that the others weren't held by the people, weren't uh, the other rights that weren't listed didn't exist. Uh, the Anti-Federalists argued that um, you needed to enumerate these rights, otherwise the governing bodies wouldn't respect them. Do you ultimately think that the Anti-Federalists were right? Well, another argument by, by the Federalists is that um, you know, they created a government of enumerated powers. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the government simply had no power over religion, it had no power over the press. And so it, it simply couldn't legislate in those areas. And so why did you need to, to say so? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they lost that argument because um, ultimately, in, in, in a number of the ratifying conventions, um, they simply, the, the, the Federalists simply could not get approval for the Constitution without agreeing that they would consider amendments Mm-hmm. after the Constitution was ratified. And, and so Madison, in fact, went to the first federal Congress and proposed uh, a number of amendments, including, including the First Amendment. Yeah, and, and well, Madison had all along argued that, this, that these sort of amendments would just be parchment barriers to any sort of tyranny. He thought if the, these beliefs and these rights didn't live in the hearts of the citizenry, that they would never exist, no matter what the Constitution said. Uh, but when he was and, writing, writing that First Amendment... Uh, or writing the amendments, he initially, and this is something that I didn't know and I learned from your book, had proposed two amendments protecting expression, if I'm not mistaken. One prohibiting the federal government from infringing on freedom of speech in the press. And then a second amendment that sort of uh, is like our 14th Amendment today and our incorporation doctrine that prevented state governments from doing so. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, this this amendment um, uh, was, was... ultimately was not approved by, by Congress, and so was never sent to the mm-hmm. states for ratification. And Madison th- actually thought that this was the most important amendment that he had proposed. Um, These two amendments. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, of, of course, what became the First Amendment mm-hmm. uh, was ratified, but the other one that would apply um, s- some of the portions of the Bill of Rights, including freedom of, of the press, to, to the states, what was didn't get it passed didn't get past Congress mm-hmm. because there was, you know, there was feeling, there was always this argument. It, it exists today in the United States and goes back to this period. Um, the push and pull between the power of the states and the power of, of the federal government. 
and um, you know, the, the, uh, there were a lot of people in, in Congress who simply did not want the states to be tied um, by uh, the federal constitution. They wanted to be able to, to do what they, what they wanted. You, um, at the end of the book, sort of put Madison forth as the person that brings all of these disparate ideas about freedom of expression together, the idea um, that it should be, you know, speech should be protected both symbolically uh, in the press, uh, spoken word and assembly. Um, and you say that Madison writes a compelling essay that brings all the libertarian arguments for freedom of speech together. Why did he write that? You start to see some of these arguments develop uh, over the years, um, over a period of, of maybe 30 years um, in, in the, you know, before 1800. Uh, these are arguments developed by a number of, of, of libertarian writers uh, who are um, using pseudonyms typically. And um, M- Madison picked up on this and he enlarged it and he made it a, a really full argument for freedom of the press and freedom of speech. And the argument was that um, the, one, one type of system was fine for England, where sovereignty was in, the, in Parliament and the king could do no wrong. And Parliament was seen to be the guardian of the people's rights. But in this new country, the United States, a new, we had a new system. Sovereignty was now in the people. And they controlled um, their fate. They, they um, elected people to represent them. It was a republic. And so in order to um, uh, participate in self-governance because of popular sovereignty, people had to be able to fully discuss and debate um, all the relevant topics of the day. They had to be able to, to feel that they were free to criticize uh, people in office and people running for office and you know, without fear of punishment. And so what, what Madison did in a very powerful way was connect popular sovereignty and Republican government to freedom of speech and freedom of the press, that mm-hmm. they were uh, tied together in a way that um, they supported one another. And so that, that was his, his major contribution. You know, self-governance required the freedom to dis- debate and discuss public issues and public men without fear of punishment. Yeah, in short, democracy required freedom of speech right. and freedom of the exactly. press. Exactly. I want to finally here bring this to modern day because you, t- you say in your book that it took a very long time for the legal structure in the United States surrounding the First Amendment to catch up with the actual freedom that those who lived during the revolutionary debate enjoyed uh, as part of their you know, right to free expression. You said the Supreme Court did not regularly use the First Amendment to strike down state or federal laws punishing speech until well into the 20th century uh, when it began to strengthen safeguards on expression. Why is that? Uh, well, it wasn't until 1925 that the First Amendment was, was made applicable to, to the states through the 14th Amendment. So all through the 19th century, uh, any state laws that would infringe on on speech or press were only subject to the limitations of the you know, state constitutions. Yeah, and that's uh, yeah. that's almost 135 years since right. Madison first introduced that concept. Right. So, so the 14th Amendment um, eventually was you know uh, made it possible to uh, apply the First Amendment protections 
of, for the press to uh, um, make it a limitation on state action as well. That took mm-hmm. place in, in 1925. Mm-hmm. But even then, the ideas about freedom of speech and freedom of the press um, were very rudimentary. Mm-hmm. And it took a while, um, you know, another 50 years, um, almost 50 years to mm-hmm. uh, come around to a more modern, what we consider more modern and expansive and protective uh, stance um, in favor of uh, speech and press. Well, I know you're a busy man, Professor Solomon, but I end my show by always asking our guests two questions, um, and they can be applicable to your book, or they, they don't necessarily need to be. Uh, if you were to recommend to someone one piece of literature, it could be a book or it could be a pamphlet, um, to read about freedom of speech or freedom of the press, what would that be? And then do you have a free speech hero? I would... Um I think I think Madison's report of 1800 uh, to the Virginia um, House um, defending freedom of speech and freedom of the press in the face of the Sedition Act is probably the greatest single American document on the freedom of uh, political thought. Um, just uh, that, that's where he tied up all these ideas of self-governance and democracy and, and, and the, the need to have a liberty of thought to, to really support our form of government. And a hero, um, I, I think it's Madison, mm-hmm. because he was the first to, I think, to really, in, in, a, in the fullness of his intellectual thought, bring all these ideas together. And in the great case of New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States um, spent a good deal of their uh, decision, um, their opinion, uh, looking back at at the Sedition Act controversy and and quoting Madison from his report of 1800, so uh, it lived on, uh, became influential. It took you know 164 years uh, to reach that pinnacle of uh, kind of governing a Supreme Court opinion, but I think that's what what happened. Well, I think that's a great place to end it, Professor Solomon. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, and I encourage anyone out there to check out his book, Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. Thank you. Thank you. That was NYU professor Stephen Solomon. If you're interested in reading his book, Revolutionary Dissent, it's available at Amazon.com or anywhere else that fine books are sold. If you buy your book at Amazon, please consider doing so through Amazon's Smile program, which donates a portion of your purchase to the charity of your choice. You can do this by going to smile.amazon.com and selecting your charity of choice, and I hope you choose the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, and then just proceeding through the website as normal. You can do this with any purchase you make at Amazon, and it doesn't just have to be Professor Solomon's book, although I hope you will add that to your cart as well. Again, smile.amazon.com. I also want to give a special shout out to a former guest on the show, Ron Collins. Revolutionary Dissent first came to my attention in one of Ron Collins' First Amendment news digests for concurringopinions.com. If you're a regular listener of this show and a regular follower of First Amendment news, I highly recommend checking out Ron's First Amendment news write-ups. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that nearly everything that happens in the world of the First Amendment is chronicled there on a weekly basis. What he does with those write-ups is truly remarkable, and you can find them, again, at concurringopinions.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, 
Nico Perino, and recorded and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating us and posting a review at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks again for listening. We'll be right back.